Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the Readers Podcast in the Dunya, the Three Muslims Podcast. If you like what you're watching, then inshallah, check out our other episodes, like, comment, and subscribe, and check out our Patreon, inshallah. For today's episode, we have another very special guest, Brother Mahdi. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How you doing? Very well, and thank you for having me once again. Of course, of course. So today we decided to talk about something we didn't really talk too much about on the show up until now, which is basically finances, entrepreneurship. And we know you have a very specific background in all this, you know, having run businesses yourself. Um, so we want to get a bit into that, inshallah. So do you mind giving us a bit of your background uh, in the business world? Sure. Well, I mean, I don't consider myself a business expert. Let me just put that disclaimer out there. Um, but let me just, let's back it up a bit. So my, my adult life started pretty young. Uh, I got married at 16 years old and I left home pretty much straight away to live with my wife um, and our child that was on the way. So as soon as we got married, she fell pregnant a couple months, literally six weeks later. And then, so she was a stay at home mom. I had my first, we had our first kid at 17, second at 18, third at 19. When I was 20, one of our children passed away. When I was 22, we had another one. When I was 23, we had another one. So it was really like, it was, it was, I was forced to grow up from a very young age. I had to, because I decided to get married so young. And just as a disclaimer for the audience, it was not an arranged marriage. No, I met this sister in, in school, in college. And we liked each other. And we said, we said, we want to do this the halal way. What's the point in messing around? I saw the sister was wearing hijab abaya. And I always had this thing, even though I was in my jahiliya, I always had this thing where it's like, you don't mess around with the Muslim sisters. I know that sounds bad, but it's like the Muslim sisters, if you want to deal with a Muslim sister, deal with her seriously. So we decided to get married and Allah facilitated that with ease, alhamdulillah. So we got married. She had, we had a bunch of kids. She stayed at home. I went to university and I did the whole university thing. I graduated from university in 20, 2013. And then immediately I headed out to Saudi Arabia because the whole time whilst I was in university, I was doing a degree, sports and exercise science, that I realized towards the end of it that I don't even enjoy this topic. I like sports from a perspective of participating in them, but I don't like actually studying uh, the science behind sports. And if you've done a sports science degree or you know anyone who has, don't be fooled by the term sports. It's basically a science degree. And I don't really like science. So I ended up doing a course that I don't really like. Anyway, I finished the degree, alhamdulillah, got towards the end of it. And I started looking at my options. What do I do now? Where do I go next? And it just so happened at that time that a lot of brothers were heading over to Saudi Arabia uh, to teach English. So I said to myself, you know what? That makes sense. I can live in a Muslim country. I can earn good tax-free money. My kids can you know, be raised in a Muslim environment. This sounds like it makes sense. It was better than my options that I had here in the UK. So I did a CELTA, I flew over to Saudi Arabia and I lived in Medina for a year. And the idea was I spent one year on my own, saving some money, establishing ourselves. Um, and then I bring my family over the following year. <clears throat> but of course, Allah had different plans. So I spent that year in Saudi Arabia, got towards the end of the academic year, all the teachers were assessed. And there was a big school, Jamia Taiba in Medina. It's a big university. And alhamdulillah, I got the second best uh, assessment out of all of the teachers in that, in, in, that, that, in that school at that time. 
two or three weeks later, I was fired. So I go from getting the second best grade to being fired immediately afterwards. And when I look back on it in hindsight, I realized why certain aspects about my character, uh, I was a bit too assertive with um, the upper echelon, if you like, uh, in voicing my views and so on. But what it made me realize was that even as a good performing teacher, as a high performing employee, I was still disposable. And the only way I can explain it was, I felt like a tissue paper. I was sneezed into, they had used me, now it's time to throw it in the bin. And that's the reality as an employee, especially as an employee who wasn't very highly qualified. Let's face it, most people have a degree today and a shelter is not really a big deal. So I hadn't really differentiated myself very much. So I spoke to the brothers before I left and they said to me, Mahdi, look, you're not highly qualified enough. You need to get a master's degree so that you can, um, uh, you know, bolster your, your CV, your credentials, and then come back again and apply because now you'll be less disposable, if you like. So I said, okay, that makes sense. <clears throat> I made some money. I thought I'll come back to the UK and I'll do a master's degree in English language. I signed up for the master's degree in English language. It's 5,000 pounds. I saved enough money to be able to pay for it. And before you pay for the degree, you get this six week block where you can basically trial it to see if it's for you. I started the degree, the master's degree. I hated it. I hated every minute, every minute of it. After that, I was introduced to this, uh, to this concept, this new opportunity, if you like. It was called ACM. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's a network marketing company. It's from the US, it's from the States. I was introduced to it. And basically, long story short, it's, a, it's like your, your, your classic network marketing company, no different. And I was intrigued by the opportunity of being able to work for myself. That was the dream that was sold, right? Work on your own terms, work for yourself and so on. So I'm four weeks now into the master's degree. This opportunity, ACM, has been presented to me. And then I had a real, I came to a real fork in the road. And I said to myself, Mahdi, are you going to continue this master's degree that you hate only so that you can then get another job that you also hate? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay 5,000 pounds to do a degree that you don't enjoy so that you can then get a job that you don't enjoy. That doesn't make any sense. So I decided to pull the plug and, and quit the master's degree. And that was a big decision for me at that time. That was like, I realized the course of my life is changing direction now in a big way because my whole family, everyone's highly educated. My sister's doing her PhD right now and everyone's gotten a good job and a good solid career and establish themselves in their respective field. So for me to pull the plug on, on that life, that came as a shock to my family. And that was like, that wasn't an easy decision for me to make because I realized once I do this, there's I can't come back to this now, khalas. So I, put, I quit the degree. I said, enough is enough. I'm not gonna work for any, anyone anymore. I poured my heart into ACN. And it was initially a success. It was going well. It was going all right. And I was making respectable money. Not millions, but good enough. Six months later, I realized there were certain shara'i issues with the business model that I was no longer comfortable with. And I decided, khalas, I don't want anything to do with this business. So I quit ACN six months later. Now, I, I was 
married with four kids and no job, completely broke. Okay. So it was a quite an embarrassing situation for me because first I had hyped up this whole ACN thing to my family. And then I had quit it. And on top of that, I had quit my master's, which means I had no backup plan, none whatsoever. So what do I do next? I've got four kids to feed and a wife and, and I've got no money. What's my next move? Then I remembered whilst I was in Saudi Arabia, I came across this one particular product that uh, was very effective at dealing with treating eczema, particularly in kids, but for, for all people, adults and children alike. And I thought to myself, why don't I try and sell this product in the UK? It was effective for my family. My friends loved it. Everyone's asking me, where do, where do I get it from? Why don't I just try and sell this thing myself? So I bought, I bought some of that cream. And the way I did it was the individuals who had tried the cream already, I said to them, look, guys, you like this cream, right? Okay. But I don't have money to buy more of it. If you want this cream, tell me how much you want. Give me the money up front. I'll go and buy it. And then I'll bring it to you. So I had my retail price and I had the cost price and I charged them the retail price. So I took that money. I told them up front, this is the deal. I don't have the money to get it. But if you give me this money, I can get it for you. Sort of like some type of weird type of dropshipping thing. I did that. And I think we managed to collect just 800 pounds, nothing much. Took that money, bought the cream. It was enough for me to buy a substantial amount to start the business. And then we we're off the races, off to the races from there. Literally three months later, that business was turning over £20,000 a month online through minimal Jeez. marketing, minimal marketing. And so Paolo is like, I, I want to really make it clear at this point. This is not because I was some type of genius. The, you know, there are elements in business where they call it luck. I call it Qadr. We can call it Qadr. I was fortunate to have found a product that was good, that was in demand, that the people wanted and that they were willing to pay a premium for period. That was it. And I took, I took advantage of it. I saw an opportunity. I took it. I took the opportunity. Three months later, I'm earning money I had never seen before. I'd never seen that type of money in my life, earning £20,000 a month. And here's the problem. Once you start earning money that you've never seen before, you start to think this is the new normal. And it's not. You think this is the new normal. And slowly but surely, I started taking my foot off the gas pedal. I was no longer doing the same, making the same adverts, putting the same work into the copywriting, the same marketing efforts, the ad budget. I stopped doing that. And it was a slow process. I initially like took my foot off a little bit and then I took it off more and more and more until the business was literally running itself. But here's the scary thing. I wasn't doing anything to, for the business. And yet the business was still generating the same revenue. Now I said to myself, that's it. I'm set for life. This is it. This business is like a gold mine. I don't need to do anything. And the business runs itself. Very dangerous. Never, ever think for a moment that with no effort, your business will continue to maintain. Because there is no such thing as maintenance. You're either growing or you're shrinking. And there's nothing in between. So I stopped putting in that work. Now, eventually, there was like a delayed effect. Have you ever driven a car that's got a turbo? When you put your foot down, initially, you hear the turbo revving. It goes, and then there's a lag period, right? 
I was in that lag period where I was doing no work and the business was still making the same amount of money. After that, that lag period had passed, slowly, slowly, the numbers started dwindling. But what had happened to me, I had become a bit lazy, fat, as in my, my motivation muscles were fat. The money came too easily. And I said to myself, okay, if it decreases by 2,000 pound a month, that's not a problem. 18,000 pound a month is still okay. 16,000 pound a month is still okay. 14,000 pound a month is still okay. And slowly, slowly, the numbers continued to dwindle and I continued to justify my laziness. That's the bottom line. Until eventually, we're talking now two and a half years later, it literally took two and a half, three years. That's how solid the product was. It took nearly three years for the business to reach a point where if I didn't do something now, right now, I'm going to be in big trouble all over again. So the business went from £20,000 a month all the way down to, I remember the lowest was 2200 gross, not net, which means the profit was negligible on that. And it was in that moment, it was in oh, March 2019, I believe it was, that I decided, no, Maddie, this is ridiculous now. We need to do something about this. So at that time, the business was on Facebook. I decided the new market was on Instagram. All the kids are on Instagram. I wasn't particularly familiar with how Instagram worked at that time, but I thought, Let's just try it. Put the product on Instagram. I just did the same things that I was doing on Facebook. I would collect customer testimonials from the customers before and after pictures, a few uh, sentences of their experience of the product, and then just put that out there, put it online and see how the people react. And again, to cut a long story short, March 2019, the business was generating, I think it was £3,000 a month at that time. Fast forward to June 2019, and we had a £49,000 month that month. So it went from three grand to 49 grand in a very short space of time once again. This time I said to myself, I'm not making that mistake again. Okay, I've got the business to here. I'm not taking my foot off the pedal this time. So I started, you know, developing systems, um, hiring, outsourcing work such as the media work, the advertising and so on. And I really wanted to make something big out of this business. At the same time, I started siphoning off some of the profits of the business to invest in other ventures because that first experience I had before of the business going from 20 grand to three grand a month, that was scary. I didn't want to go through that again. So I said, this time I've learned my lesson. I'm going to invest in other things and at the same time, invest in building this business. So the business continues to build and it's going well. All is going well. December 2019. It's Fajr, six o'clock in the morning. I had just prayed Salah. All of a sudden I hear, bang, 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 bang. It's the police, open up, bang, bang, bang. Open the door, we're going to break it down. Now, just to give the context, I just prayed. I was lying down on the floor in the lounge, half asleep. I was completely disoriented. I went to the door and I said to them, how do I know you're not, you're not burglars? I was disoriented. They said, if you don't open the door, we're going to break it down. I said, show me your badge through the letterbox. So they put their, their badge through the letterbox. I saw the badge. I said, okay, clearly these guys are the real deal. They came in. There was about seven or eight of them. Swarmed my home like mosquitoes. They went everywhere. I still don't know what they're here for at this point. Like, I, I was, my mind was going everywhere. Am, am I being caught on some type of, being done for some type of terror charge? Or what, what, are, you, what, what's, what are you here for? They sit me down 
and they say to me, we've been informed that you're selling an unlicensed medication in the UK. You don't have a license to sell this product. And I said to them, are you referring to my eczema product? They said, yes, this is a licensed product and you don't have the right to sell this product here in the UK. We need a license. We need to go for a bona fide, like it's a whole big thing. They confiscated all of the, um, all of the product that I had in the property in the home. They shut down my Shopify store, shut down my website, shut down my social media channels in one go. I don't even know how they did it. It was a, a complete shutdown instantly, immediately. They shut it down. And <clears throat> so from that, after that day, I literally went from having a, a thriving, successful business to nothing overnight, just like that. But Alhamdulillah, this time I had already made some investments elsewhere and saved a little bit of money as well so that I could plan my next moves, give myself a bit of time before moving forward onto the next venture. Um, <clears throat> so that's the story of how I got into entrepreneurship, basically. And since then, I've been dabbling with different things and I have continually made a dua to Allah. So I make this, made this dua all the time. I don't want to live this life just functioning, just earning for the sake of it. I want to find my purpose. You hear, you know, entrepreneurs talking about this all the time. What's your life's purpose? What's your, what are you here for? And aside from worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what unique gifts and skills and abilities and passions do you have that you can benefit the world? This has been something that's been very, very important to me. And I have been willing to turn down some really good opportunities for the sake of finding. And then once I found continuing upon my purpose and I've, I believe I've recently found it, alhamdulillah, in the whole you know, masculinity field, bringing back masculine Muslim men. Um, but yeah, so that's basically my story. I also wrote a book on my experiences of taking a business from 3 to 39K in 121 days. That book's actually on Amazon. Um, it can be bought there. And that's, that's essentially my experience in business. I'm sure I've missed a few things. I've had some other ventures as well that, I'm, that I've papered over. There was uh, another... Uh, arthritis product that we were selling there was another um, sexual performance product that we were selling couple of different things that I've dabbled with over, over the years so that's basically my journey in entrepreneurship MashaAllah 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 no, I got so, so much many, to say man I know bro so many points that I could relate to but you go first bro because you got like 10 minutes yeah so first thing man when you said the whole thing about um, studying the exercise science, mm. bro, <laughs> I was doing the same thing. Really? And, uh, the same exact thing that you said where I was like, yo, I, I like sports, like participating in them. I don't, I don't really like, like this whole studying thing. Like, it's not really sports. <laughs> and so like, bro, good. alhamdulillah, bro, I swear that's why I do martial arts and that's why I want to get into you know, having my own gym, having multiple gyms and all that. But man, like that, that touched home for me. And bro, the fact of like you saying that you started something, you started making a lot of money and then you got comfortable, you took your foot off the gas. And then it's like, there was a delay, bro. Like I had the same exact experience. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah, bro. SubhanAllah. Fire, bro. Please go. I would like to know what was your experience? Man, so I have a YouTube channel aside from this one, right? And the YouTube channel, I had about like, I want to say 
after like two something years, I had like maybe seven to ten thousand subscribers. Alhamdulillah. But then like I had basically started to really research more into like how to make viral content, how to really like blow the channel up. And bro, I kid you not, like by the grace of Allah, within a few months, I went from seven to ten thousand subscribers to like over a hundred and fifty thousand subscribers. And it's like, it kept going, it kept going, it got over 200 and something thousand, and then I got comfortable. And it's like, bro, like, I'm not going to sit here and, and say, like, the amount that I was making, but let's just say that it it was it was a delay and then this just decline. And it was this constant rationalization of, like, ah, well, this is enough. And you know what? I have this free time that I can do this, this, and that. But it's like, dude, as men, like, we don't really want free time. We want something that we can devote ourselves to. Absolutely. You know, so like for the whole time that I was doing that and I kept rationalizing this, like, bro, I asked myself the same question that you asked yourself. Where it was like, what is my purpose here? Besides, you know, I, I'm, I'm a new Muslim. I'm, I'm a revert. So like I, now I understand, okay, a true purpose is to worship Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. But aside from that, like what is the thing that we can devote our time to, our energy to? What can we, what was going to be our craft in this world, in this dunya? Mm. And bro, like I, I was doing YouTube and I was like, well, YouTube isn't it. Like I love helping people. I love sharing my experience and all that. But like this, this isn't my craft. I can't say it is because you see other YouTubers and, and you know it's their craft because the amount of work that they put in, like mm. the editing and just the quality of their videos. You're just like, wow, mashallah, like this is beautiful. And I remember one day, like long story short, man, I had gotten into the gym. And I started doing some uh, some Muay Thai. My friend was showing me the Muay Thai. And bro, subhanAllah, man, it felt like time just stood still. Bro, my mind was completely quiet. And I just felt so at peace. I was like, you know what? I could devote my time to this. I could devote every single minute of every single day to this. Now, I'm not going to do that because obviously, you know, we, we have to pray. We have to do all these things. We have to keep that taqwa. But, like, I can devote most of my time to it. And as these two brothers here, like, when we're not in Ramadan, like, bro, I'm training, like, over 10 hours a day in martial arts. 10 hours, huh? That's a job. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is, bro, but it, I love it. It's like, bro, how much hours do you put into your work? Mm. More than 10 hours a day, I bet. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of loud, man. Mashallah. A lot of similarities that I've seen. Yeah, alhamdulillah. About you, I, love point, I love the point that he brought up about comfort, man. You're either progressing or you're regressing. There's no in-between. Facts. Absolutely. I mean, sports has been a big part of my life for all of my life. And I can connect that particular point to sport in particular. In sport, you are either improving or you're regressing. There is no such thing as maintenance. You know when people say, oh, bro, I'm just maintaining. No, bro. There's no maintaining. Think of a seesaw. You have a seesaw, right? The seesaw is generally balanced in the middle, but it's never actually reaching total equilibrium. It's always moving ever so slightly mm. this way or that. Same thing goes with your body. Same thing goes with your mind. Same thing goes with your business. It is either growing or it's regressing and shrinking. There is nothing in between. And there's a great book that I read that connects to that topic well. And it's by the founder of Intel Chips. I can't remember his name, but the book is called Only the Paranoid Survive brilliant book by uh, the founder of Intel and I forget his name 
And he talks about the importance of always staying paranoid in business. And you can take that mindset to anything. Let's say you're a champion UFC fighter or a boxer or you're in business. It doesn't matter. There's always another hungry wolf climbing that hill, snapping at your heels. Someone who is not full yet, they haven't tasted that type of success. They're hungry. You've got to constantly stay in shape. You've got to constantly stay paranoid when it comes to your business looking at the different variables, analyzing the numbers, breaking it down and striving to continually move forward. I would say even with the deen, even with our religion, we can become comfortable. You know, alhamdulillah, brother, I pray, I pray five times a day. You know, alhamdulillah, okay, mashallah, that's good. You're cutting the basics, but are you progressing? Because if you're not progressing, you're regressing somewhere else. Somewhere else in, in your iman, it's regressing. You might not even be aware of it. Just as in your business, there could be areas that are shrinking and regressing that you might not even be aware of, but it's happening because we are not operating from a point of paranoia. I know it has a negative connotation, that word, but I like the title of that book, Only the Paranoid Survive. And better to be paranoid than to be lazy and off the ball. If I had to choose between the two, I'm going to choose paranoia. It's like obsession. My bad, bro. Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, so would you then say that the idea of maintenance is just um, like the lag period afterwards? How do you mean? So like, for example, for you, um, you thought you would maintain that business because it, it would maintain itself. And you were deluded by the fact that it didn't initially drop down. There was mm. a lag before it did. So mm. I'm asking the idea of maintenance. Would you then say that it's just you perceiving the lag but not knowing it's it's lag well i would say it's you you're not aware of the lag in the first place mm. let me give you another example you've got a big steam train and it's traveling down at i don't know 150 kilometers per hour okay suddenly you cut the power there's no power five seconds later if the train was traveling at 150 kilometers per hour before you cut the power precisely five seconds later what's the speed of the train Probably the same or very close. Probably to the same. Exactly. That's, that's the lag time. You see, mm -hmm. in business, maybe that five seconds will extend to five months, maybe mm -hmm. even five years. Who knows? Everyone's lag time is different. And the, the, the really dangerous thing is the longer the lag time, the more deluded you become. Mm -hmm. I had quite a long lag time. It was a good few months until anything started changing. But I cut the power at this time. And it took a few months for the train to start slowing down. But the problem is, once the train starts slowing down, it is so hard to get it going again. If you've ever watched World's Strongest Man, one of the events they have is uh, the plane pull. They pull a plane or they'll pull two big buses, right? The hardest part of that event is the start, always. And they always talk about the commentators, the importance of keep your momentum going. Don't let the thing stop because the moment it stops, you have to apply all that force to break inertia all over again to get that momentum, right? Mm. And momentum is a cruel mistress. I remember hearing this once on some video, I can't remember now. It's a cruel mistress. It can turn on you very quickly. The moment you take your eye off the ball, you cut the power, the train is beginning to slow down. It's just that initially there's a lag time and you can't perceive it. And that's dangerous because you think everything's fine. And that's exactly what happened to me. I don't know. Beautiful example. 
Tommy, have you ever you ever done a handstand? I tried. Have you ever felt like the uh the shift in your body weight as you go into like that middle point? Yeah. If you feel the shift in your hands, it's the same thing he's talking about. Like where you're never just like fully balanced. You're constantly twitching back and forth. That's and cool. then, bro, it's like the moment where like you might be leaning too far to one side. That's the lag time where you don't perceive it. Okay. And by the time you perceive it, it's like you have to really like, bro, brace your core to be able to like bring yourself back or it's a little too late and then you just fall down. That is such a good example. Uh, that is a great example. I can do a handstand. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's a yeah, brilliant man. example. Yeah. When yeah. you're dead straight, it's okay. You can feel yourself moving a little bit, but if you don't catch it quick enough, you're finished. You have to yeah. straight or you're gone. It's, it's finished. Come exactly. Really exactly. Subhanallah. <laughs> man, that reminds me of uh, a couple of years ago. I was in really lean. I was the leanest I've ever been in my life. And I finally got lean and I thought, okay, cool. Halas, like I can maintain this now, right? So what did I do? Stop working out, started eating like trash. And I'm not going to lie, that lag period you're talking about, it wasn't as apparent because it took me a year and a half to finally start putting on weight. Why? Maybe because I've been in the gym very consistently before that. But once I started falling back, it took me a year and a half to notice. And then I was gaining weight. And then it was very hard for me to get that inertia going. Yeah, it seems so. to be a universal law you can apply it to literally anything your your tahfid al-quran your memorization of the quran or your memorization of anything for that matter your studies your position as a ceo in a company anything literally mm -hmm. anything is a universal law maintenance is a myth write it on your wall look at it every single morning maintenance is a myth it doesn't exist it Honestly, it reminds me like when you said that it, it applies to Dean as well. Because when I first reverted, like my iman was obviously very strong. Alhamdulillah. And I was learning the prayers and doing all this stuff. But it's like once I learned the prayers, I literally took my foot off the gas. And I was like, all right, well, I know the prayers. Let me, let me focus on the prayers. Let me, you know, kind of just do my thing here. And it, like you said, there was a lag period. And it, it wasn't evident to me until closing in on ramadan where i was like one day i was just so turbulent like so upset about something and i was like dude look at yourself like look how far away you are from the straight path from the dean like yes you do the martial arts yes you're on your purse but it's mashallah but like your dean is so weak your iman is so weak because you literally just decided like oh well now i know this let me just kind of ease up and not do anything i hear that um, the scholars, they talk about um, knowledge and implementation, and it's a constant cycle of knowledge and implementation. Um, mm -hmm. For example, you have to take the action to learn knowledge. And then once you have the knowledge, you have to implement it into action. And then it just keeps cycling and cycling. So there should be no point in your life where you're not either learning something or implementing that thing that you learned or That's teaching facts. it. For that matter. That's facts. facts. And as a Muslim, no excuse to not stay busy just yeah. for the thing itself. With work and everything as a high value man, yeah. I would say, I mean, as as a Muslim and as a man, period, you know, especially as men, the burden, of, I mean, this takes us on to a whole different discussion, but the burden of performance is upon us as men. And mm. I appreciate sometimes it takes time uh, for you to make these realizations, especially if you've been used to something that came very easily, as in my case with the business, for example. My first experience of entrepreneurship of business was very easy. 
And that lulled me into a false sense of security. So it took my business to nearly go out of business for me to actually wake up and realize, hold on a minute, I need to pattern up. But also, as, as uh, Fayyad just said, it's not even about the money or about being secure. It's, as men, it's about constantly moving forward to the next goal. You never arrive. There is no arrival. There's a goal. And if it's a lofty goal, you might never reach it. But if you do, that's okay. Pat yourself on the back for a couple of days and then reset and move forward again. Because, and this is a known fact, many, most, many people who retire in their old age die a few years later. Very few, a few years later from the day they retired to the day they die, there's only a few years in between. Why? Because whilst they were at work, they had something to focus on. Their mind was continually being stimulated. They had something to work towards, even if it was not their purpose, so to speak. It was still a goal that they had to work towards. I need to teach this student or I need to finish this project, something. The moment the mind becomes stagnate, you stagnate with it. And it's almost as though the body says, well, if there's no reason for you to be here, we may as well not be here. And then you're gone, you know. So, yeah, constantly moving towards the next goal, especially as men. Jeez, girl. Jeez. Jeez. Bro, you ever heard of uh, I'm about to dip, man. I don't want to dip because this is like this is a real combo here, bro, for real. But um, you ever heard of beginner's luck? Yes, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah, bro. I'm I'm literally I've come to realize that it is not luck, like you said, it's it's Qadr, Qadr of Allah, but it's it's like Allah is like blessing you with something where it's like you're starting this new venture and Allah is like blessing you with like, look, this is what you can achieve. This is what you can do. Mm. But then he strips it away to test you to see like, okay, I gave this to you. You know what you're capable of. Mm. Now, are you going to put in the work? Like, do you really want it? Let's see how bad you want. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't remember the exact words, but um, there's a, a fable in 48 Laws of Power that refers to this about when something is meant, a path is meant for you to, to, to traverse, to walk, to, to travel on, you will experience initial easy success. Exactly what you're talking about, this whole concept of beginner's luck. But then it will be taken away from you. Now you have the memory of what success felt like, but now you're locked in. You might be going through this down period, but you're locked in because you know, okay, you know what? I had that easy that, that easy time there, but now I'm locked in. I need to continue and actually make something real out of this. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, bro, I'm going to let you say your salams before I go in. Yeah. All right, y'all. Very nice to meet you. I look forward to speaking to you again, inshallah. Yes, brother. Yes. Same. Why yak, right? That's what I say. Nah. Why yak, Habibi? Why yak? Um, guys, assalamu alaikum. I'll see y'all in the next one. Take care. bro. Enjoy. Man, a couple things going through my mind. I was watching a highlight of yours on IG one night, and it had to do with mental health. And now I know this is extensively a topic that deserves an episode of its own. But without going too much, you were speaking on some gems about why in quarantine or the lockdown, people were kind of regressing in their mental health or they, they had all these things like depression. And, and you gave a very unconventional approach to it. Right. So do you want to go a little bit into that? Yeah, I think you're referring to what uh, the works of Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
So again, this is not my, I'm not a mental health specialist. Uh, I know very little about mental health for that matter, but I'm regurgitating, parroting what I learned from that book. And Viktor Frankl, he is a Holocaust survivor. And if you read that book, by the way, I'm not gonna lie to you, that book made me cry. I read that book twice, it made me cry twice. It's deep, subhanAllah, what type of uh, hardship man can be exposed to and still come out of it. It's, it's amazing. You, I, I can't do it justice by trying to describe it. But anyway, in his book, he talks about how much of our mental health issues don't stem or don't originate from too much pressure. They originate from not enough pressure. And he gives the example of a bridge. Engineers, when they see that the structural integrity of a bridge is weak, do you know how they strengthen it? They take a load, a weight, and they put this weight on top of the bridge to, to strengthen the, uh, to sort of like push. Okay, think of a sandcastle. You ever been to the beach before? You've got your bucket and you make a sandcastle, right? Suddenly you see the sandcastle starts to crumble. What do you do? Instinctively, you put your hand on top of it to pat it together again. You apply pressure. Same with the bridge. When the structural integrity of a bridge, and I'm no engineer, but I'm just, again, parroting what I learned from the book. When it's compromised, engineers place a weight, a load on top of the bridge to strengthen its foundations again. He said, equally with the mind, often you will find that people's mental health issues originate less from too much pressure and more from not enough pressure. And what you were referring to, Fayyad, about lockdown is the reason why I brought that up particularly in lockdown, I kept on seeing mental health posts coming up over and over. And I made that connection. I, I said to myself, well, maybe there's a connection here between people being laid off work temporarily. And now all of a sudden, they don't have the pressure of work, which they thought was bad for them. But actually, just like the sandcastle, just like the bridge, it was keeping them mentally stable. And the moment that pressure was removed from them, that's when things started falling apart. It's deep, right? Your thoughts, Rami, because you're going into engineering. Not say that again, Afi. I was I was asking Rami to give his thoughts because he's going into engineering. Subhanallah. <laughs> it's uh it's honestly profound. That's that's crazy. I never thought about it like that, subhanAllah. And that's something I witnessed myself, which is why it hits so close to home for me because um I was locked up for a long time and I witnessed, you know, my own kind of like mental decline. Um, not that it was you know horrible, alhamdulillah, but it was noticeable for me. Guys, when, he, when he's talking about locked up, he's not talking about prison. All right? he's, he's talking about like just quarantine. <laughs> yes, yes. Alhamdulillah. Uh, thank you for the clarification. Yeah, uh, and then Alhamdulillah, I started working again more recently and it, it made me feel, you know, like a man again. It made me feel good again. Um, not that it gave me purpose, Alhamdulillah, but it kind of put me back on track, Alhamdulillah. Um, that in the deen, learning Islam and everything, Alhamdulillah. So um, I'm not an engineer yet, so I can't really comment uh, too much on it. But um I imagine that they put enough pressure for enough period of time in mm. it and then remove the load um, because obviously too much pressure is, you know, too much pressure. Like people suffer from PTSD and, and certain things. So obviously no one overburden themselves um, and, and cause trauma in your life. But the point is that um, this whole idea of, you know, this life can be like Jannah, nothing bad. You don't want that because if you had that, then your life would suck. And it's kind of paradoxical. 
um but subhanallah it is very true um i guess i'm beginning to realize more and more that everything is about balance like literally everything in life is about balance um and not that everything needs to be in the middle but it needs to be balanced um meaning if this side is light and this side is heavy and maybe you need to be a bit more towards this end just balance it properly moderate everything and subhanallah i think this is another great example so jazakallah khair i think that was really profound I mean, on that point of balance, <clears throat> I will I will contend something different. I will say to you, there will be periods in your life where you need to be very unbalanced and then other periods where you need to pull back and focus on a different area. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. If, if we are aspiring to be high value men, it means as a high value man, you need to devote a certain amount of time on a daily basis to said course. For example, Anhel was saying, um, uh, he often devotes up to 10 hours a day to his martial arts, right? That's not balance. That's completely unbalanced. But it's the price of success in said field. It's the, the price of progress. It's the price of excellence. That's what it costs. Excellent has a cost. So there will be times when you need to be extremely unbalanced in order to make progress. And then you need to pull it back and give attention to those other areas of your life where you may have neglected during that period of imbalance when you are pursuing said cause. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. That that does make sense. Um, I think I think the difference would be our understanding of what's being balanced. For example, if you were to take how much on hill spends a day in terms of hours and balance it with everything else, it would be unbalanced because you're comparing um, how much time he spends training, how much time he spends everything else. But if you were to compare something like um, how long he's training and how long, his, how much his body can handle. Um, maybe it's balanced, maybe it's more balanced. But in, in your case, I definitely agree. I see what you're saying. Very unbalanced, but uh, it needs to be done. Hey, so the but even when you're training, bro, you have to train past your limits of what you can handle to make progress, to make hypertrophy. It reminds me of when, when I'm waking up in the morning, right, to pray Fajr. No, like, let's be honest. Yes, it is jihad for Sabbath. We have to do it, but you know, there's that voice in your head telling you, you know, the waswasa. You just want to sleep. You just want to stay in bed, you know, with your wife. You got the blanket. You got the heater. But you do it anyway, right? It's an opportunity cost, but it's one that we must do. And I feel like in life, everything is an opportunity cost. There's nothing that, that can be fully in balance. Mm, yeah. But yeah. I, do like, I do like both of your, your viewpoints. SubhanAllah. When you say a limit, do you mean like mental limit or physical limit? Because a lot of the time with myself, I end up setting a mental limit that's nowhere close to my physical limit. And that's when I that's when I give in. So I'm curious about that point. Did you, physical, did you mean physical? You meant mental, right? I meant physical, bro. You meant physical limits. I meant absolute physical. Like your muscle cells, yeah. your strength, your CNS can only handle some load. Mm -hmm. You must exceed that, right? In, in working out in fitness, we call that progressive overload. Mm -hmm. If you are not doing that, you will not succeed. You will not progress. Mm. Like, that's also, it, it reminds me of the point Mahdi was saying about you're either progressing or regressing, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. right? You can't progress or regress. I do understand in a lot of avenues in life, we must facilitate balance and restraint. For example, uh, let's say anger. We must keep our anger in balance. We cannot go um, too much into just tyranny, but we can't just always shy away and, and have restraint and not say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done. But it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to always teeter-totter. We, we could be stoic. We could be balanced. But in other aspects, bro, completely agree. 
I mean, when it comes to you're, you're talking about progressive overload there, you see the problem, I will, I will call it a problem. The problem with getting good at something is that the better you get at it, the harder you have to work to get even better. I'll give you an example. Let's say you, you see your day one at the gym and you can bench press uh, 60 kilos, right? Oh, let me give it to you in pounds. What's that in pounds? 100 pounds, right? 100 pounds. That's your day one in the gym. Yeah. Sorry? 135 pounds, right. Three months later, you finally managed to manage to bench press 225 pounds. Amazing. Great. But guess what? If you want to continue to improve, you're going to have to go 250 pounds, 275 pounds, on and on. Same can be said for fitness. Let's say one day um, you decide you want to um, enter some type of CrossFit tournament. Okay, cool. So you start training for that CrossFit tournament. Six months later, you win that CrossFit tournament. Then you think to yourself, what's next? Oh, well, that was regionals. Maybe I should consider uh, county or nationals. Okay, brilliant. You want to go to the national championships. But what does that mean? That means more work, more intensity, more pain. And that's the price of progress. That is the cost of excellence, is that you constantly have to be in your discomfort zone. And the better you get at something, the higher up the totem pole you have to climb. It's a never-ending process. And if you take your foot off the gas even a little bit, well, guess what? There's no such thing as maintenance. If you're not moving forward and getting better, you're regressing, falling backwards and getting worse. That's the cost of progress. 100%. I do a lot of online coaching uh, for like bodybuilding and fat loss. <clears throat> and I have a, a lot of clients that come from T3M. And the ones that come to me a little overweight or slightly obese and they want to go on a, a body fat cut, the first couple weeks are the easiest, mm. right? Then we can no longer keep implementing the things that I told them day one or week one to make the same linear or at least consistent amount of progress per week. Then we have to up the ante. And I feel like that's that completely lands with what you're saying. Exactly the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. Rami, you the, uh, the Kruger effect? No. So it's, it's not a physical thing like we're, men we're mentioning now, but I couldn't help but think of it when, when, when you mentioned it, Mahdi. Uh, no. The Kruger effect is essentially when you first take on a task or try and learn a skill or you, you first do something, uh, like let's say you're learning a new science, right? Or you're learning a new sport. Your confidence in it initially just goes like at 100%. And then as you begin to realize how much more there is and how much deeper it is, your confidence goes down, down till it hits like, 30% and then it slowly goes back up, but it never hits a hundred again. SubhanAllah. That's a, you know, and I want to build on that point. You just said that. SubhanAllah, that's a brilliant segue that I can't remember the exact quote, but it's to the effect of that the enlightened or those who have knowledge, they are the ones who are always uncertain about their philosophies, beliefs, and so on. But the ignorant remain cocksure of all of their opinions, hundred percent. Exactly what you're referring to there. When you have a little bit of knowledge, you think you know everything. Mm -hmm. Once you start pulling back the cover of the iceberg and you realize how vast it is, mm -hmm. it starts to humble you with its size and you realize, hold on, maybe I don't know anything, you know? Yeah. And there's a hadith where, um, you know, it, it said that Allah blocks blessings or blocks, I guess, just uh, asking for forgiveness, repentance from those who take uh, participate in bidah or innovation right the meaning of the hadith um you know from scholars is that it's not that you know they don't you know 
repentance is blocked from them or anything or jannah is blocked it's just they're so caught up in the innovation that the the thought that they're doing something wrong and that they need to repent isn't even there yeah. it's not even an avenue of their actions so they won't repent and then that's why you know repentance is blocked from them Allah, subhanallah yeah Allah. i actually heard recently um uh, it was a little quote i don't think it's from a scholar but it said um essentially allah would not inspire someone to ask for forgiveness if he didn't want to forgive them mm-hmm. so it's like along the same lines subhanallah and um uh, Mahdi, on your point before even imam malik rahimallah about fiqh he said if you are stern in your views of fiqh then you don't know fiqh if wow. you're that permanent you don't even know it subhanallah wow. subhanallah amazing Perhaps. and as a segue to that point there there's a brilliant book um that i recommend everyone reads it's by uh, robert green called mastery and he talks about the, the process that is required to reach mastery. And there's one element of the book that resonates with me every single day, subhanAllah. And he talks about the importance of allowing yourself to remain in a position of doubt on a particular hypothesis you have formed about something. He said, the longer you can postpone reaching a definitive conclusion, and remain in that position of doubt, the more information you can collect on the topic and the more wholesome your your opinion, your view, your philosophy will become so that by the time you do reach a definitive conclusion, you're solid. You're like a pillar. And that brings me to a further segue, another book by John C. Maxwell, um, Leadership Gold. And he says, those who begin with certainties end with doubts. Mm. And those who begin with doubts end with certainties. So when you're looking into a particular discussion point, don't form your, don't be too hasty to come to a definitive conclusion too quickly because you're going to miss a whole bunch of important information and then it'll get shown up in a debate or whatever the case may be. And you end up being like, oh, I didn't think about that. Mm. I didn't think to see that side. It's because we reached the conclusion too quickly. So the mm. longer you can remain in that position of doubt, the better. The problem is, and I have found it myself, is that it is extremely uncomfortable doubting yourself. Like you're looking into this particular discussion point and it feels really, I have, the only way I can describe it is, is that you feel really vulnerable. You feel vulnerable not being certain upon something because when you're certain upon something, you feel secure. But when you're uncertain, you feel vulnerable and you start to feel like, wow, man, really, I, I know nothing. It's a very humbling experience. And he's saying the longer you can keep yourself in that period, that frame, and, the, and collect information from both sides, the more certain and definitive your conclusion will be once you get there. Yeah. Mm, it reminds me of how in Islam, we don't have guarantee that we're going to go to Jannah, right? There, a lot of other religions, they do. But for us, no, we don't. We can do everything we say, and inshallah, ta'ala, we get Jannah. And may Allah grant us all Jannah, I mean, but we don't have that guarantee. And I feel like that, that whole thing you were talking about, about confidence and reaching something, fellas, I always say that confidence yields, um, no, competence yields complacency. And it has to do with just when you feel like you're good enough, you no longer feel like you need to keep going to the next level. Mm, absolutely. The moment you feel like you arrived, then you're in trouble. It goes back to our initial discussion. Once you get comfortable, once you feel like you've arrived, you're in big trouble. That's why only the paranoid survive. 
And yeah. that term, I love that statement so much because it can be applied to anything, including our deen. Only the paranoid survive. So what if you pray five times a day? So what if you give X amount of uh, sadaqah? So what if you pray X amount of nafal? Actually, we need to humble ourselves and remind ourselves that us praying that many times a day, us giving said amount, us pr uh, praying extra salawat, that in itself is a blessing from Allah in the first place for have, having instilled it in our mind to want to do it. Yeah. We need to thank Allah, not just for, be, for being able to give. We need to thank him for having given us the consciousness to want to give in the first place, because even that is from him. Yeah. Mm, I mean, guys, if you made it this far, comment down below right now. Hashtag bring Mahdi back. Looking forward to our future episodes with you. I know we're going to do one on marriage, kind of relationships, networking, all that type of stuff. But maybe we might even do another one on just the deen. But I kind of want to go a little bit into that. You mentioned briefly you have some type of a jahiliya, and I'm familiar that you know most of us do. We're not perfect, but this is not in Christianity where you're going to go to a confession stand and talk about your sins. But briefly, go over how you kind of came into it to be the best man, the best Muslim man that you could be 10 toes down from where you used to be and what helped you along the way. Was it more like an intellectual thing? Was it more like you felt something from Allah? What was it? Um, I mean, firstly and foremostly, I don't... I haven't arrived. I'm not, you know, the ideal Muslim. I'm far, far from it. I think this is an important disclaimer I need to make. Um, after that, I was raised in a conventional practicing Muslim household. My father was very staunch. Actually, I think maybe how staunch he was, was a, a possibly the reason I rebelled against him. Jazakallah he, he tried really hard with us, you know. But I was raised in a conventional Muslim household. My father's Algerian. And... Um, you know, there was no reason you could argue for me to have, to have gone astray in the first place. But I did, regardless. And um, I did what, you know, a lot of kids do. Alhamdulillah, Allah saved me from a lot, to be honest with you, because I didn't have the time. I got married too young. And my journey into practicing Islam voluntarily happened with my marriage. The day before I got married, I wasn't praying. From the night of my nikah, at 16 years old, to this day, I never missed the salah. Allah turned my life around 180 degrees in, from, in, a, in an hour, literally in an hour period. So I went from not practicing, not praying, not practicing, not nothing. Had the nikah, and subhanAllah, I abandoned all of the evil actions that I was involved in at that time. And I remember the following day, because I was young, so I got married on a Sunday, and on the Monday I had a school trip. It is what it is, right? So there was no uh, honeymoon destination for me. I had to go on this school trip uh, with the psychology department. And I remember coming, we were in a big amphitheater and it was time for salah. It was the winter time. And the salawat are very close to each other in the UK in the winter. And I remember coming out and I prayed dhuhr in like just in the middle of nowhere. And I prayed and I said to myself, wow, yesterday I wasn't praying. Today, I'm praying, not just praying, I'm praying in public where I would have been embarrassed to do this before. And I realized, subhanAllah, how hidayah is truly from Allah because that entire process happened overnight for me. The moment I got married, Allah put it in me to want to abandon all of my evil actions and then start practicing like a normal practicing Muslim man. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree from personal experience, man. Once you, bro, marrying is marriage is literally fulfilling half of your deen, right? So you have four wives, that's like 200% of fulfilling your deen. Now that's just a joke. But with that being said, uh, it's kind of like the whole excuse about, 
oh, once Allah guides me to Islam, then I'll start praying. No, it's you take that step and then you pray. Because oftentimes we don't take that step out of guilt or a fear of being a hypocrite. Oh, how could I, why would I pray if I'm still not giving up weed or I'm still not, I'm still committing zina or I'm still smoking weed or whatever, right? I don't judge anyone. Yeah, we should all, you know, come to Allah. But at the end of the day, you're not praying because you, you feel guilty that why would I pray and do this at the same time? <clears throat> no, pray, feel guilty because you should feel guilty and that will bring you closer to Allah, inshallah. I mean, that's a good point that you make there because you remind me of uh, one of the durus I sat in by Sheikh Abu Suhaib, um, his uh, expert in fiqh, mashallah, one of the students of Sheikh Al-Bani, rahimahullah. And he talks about this point. He talks about it's a trick, it's a ploy from shaitan to think that because I'm doing evil actions, I shouldn't pray. No, brother, I, you know, I do haram. I'm, I'm impure. I'm unclean because I do haram things, so I can't pray. He said, no, on the contrary, it's especially incumbent upon you to pray. And then he quoted the verse, in the salah, Verily, the salah is a barrier from fahsha and munkar, fornication and evil deeds. Meaning, if you're involved in evil, perform the salah because eventually the salah will be the cause of removing you from that evil. But if you don't pray, then you're definitely going to continue in it. Because Allah said, it's a barrier from evil, meaning it's a promise from Allah that even if you are engaged in this evil, if you are continuing to pray your salawat on time, all the time, eventually the salah will be the thing that actually removes you from that evil, one way or another. Allah. That's the word, man. Subhanallah. Yo, Rami, you got any thoughts? Yeah, subhanAllah. I wanted to comment on something, both of you, um, or one thing for each uh, of you. You mentioned before, Mahdi, you mentioned certainty and doubts and all that, subhanAllah. And I always heard this hadith of the Prophet where companions came to him and said, we're experiencing these, these huge, like horrible doubts of kufr. And the Prophet said that this is good news because it's a sign of high iman. And I always thought about it like, well, if these doubts are bother, bothering them this much, it means they have high iman because you can't really doubt something you don't really believe in, right? It's only a big evil doubt if you really believe in it. But now I'm thinking about it from another perspective that subhanAllah, maybe once they deal with these doubts, their iman will be even higher, higher because this period in which they're sitting in the doubts allows them to get more information, to be more realistic. And once they realize again, which happens to me a lot, I realize time and time again that the deen is correct, that Islam is correct. It just grants me this, this even more firm iman, subhanAllah. And on the other quote um, about uh, always, always being paranoid, subhanAllah. If you look at Umar radiallahu anhu, this is a man who was like the second greatest sahaba. Um, he was the second uh, of the, the four rightly guided uh, Islamic leaders, Khalifaid, right? Uh, radiallahu anhu. He conquered the Byzantine Empire and, and Persia, Rome, and all these places. And after he conquered one of these places, he sat under a tree and started crying because of how little he's done for the Ummah. SubhanAllah. This is Umar radiallahu anhu. SubhanAllah. Mm. The man that when he converted, the Muslims got to go pray in front of the Kaaba again. SubhanAllah. And you know, and, because you mentioned Tawheed there, so I want to insert an important point. The, the topics I was referring to about seeking um, opinions from both sides of the coin, I was talking to what you would consider as uh, 
non-religious affairs. Well, you could technically tie it to the deen, but different topics like related to my field, for example. Mm -hmm. But if you are going to start doing this with the deen, you want you, you are Muslim and you want to, for example, understand atheism. I need to put a word of warning out there to you. And that mm -hmm. is this. It's a brilliant quote by a non-Muslim. I can't remember it word for word. And it, it goes as follows. He says, a little bit of philosophy will lead you to lead you to conclude that will lead you to believe in atheism. A lot of philosophy will lead you to conclude there is a God. Mm. So before, as a Muslim, let's say, oh, I want to look into atheism. Make sure that you are first grounded fully in your religion first. Mm -hmm. It's the fundamental thing because the doubts, the shubuhat have hooks. The doubtful matters, they can hook you in. And if you are not grounded in your religion first, you're going to look into this and think, oh, wow. Yeah, maybe there's something there. There's there's a lot of Muslims here in the UK right now who are study, studying in these uh, Ivy League equivalent universities, Oxford, Cambridge. I know a number of them, Muslims, who have become atheists as a result of studying philosophy with their core degrees. Why? Why is this? Because they were not fundamentally grounded in their religion first. Yeah. Me, if I wanted to look into atheism, I would not do that without first ensuring that I am firmly planted in my knowledge, comprehension of the deen first. Mm -hmm. So if you want to exercise this philosophy that I was speaking about, about remaining in doubt with your religion, just make sure you're grounded in your religion first, because mm -hmm. the doubtful matters have hooks. And for the layman, I would not even recommend even doing this. Yeah, because when it comes to the issue of Tawheed, we're no longer talking about now winning or losing a debate. We're talking about Jannah and, uh, and Hellfire. This is a serious issue. Yeah, so unless yeah. we are fully grounded in our religion first, don't even bother entertaining that. Because the doubtful matters have hooks. They can hook you in. Yeah, yeah. Boom. I like that, bro. I like that. Because we all hear that, that saying, know thy enemy. Yes, it's important. Without... Here, without learning about atheism, without learning about Christianity, without learning about Judaism and all these Eastern religions, I wouldn't have had the iman that I have today, the full iman in Islam. But it didn't come from me from doing everything and not having a strong foundation in Islam to begin with. Mm. Right. What Mahdi is saying is you need to know your field first. Knowing other fields to fully affirm your field, that's secondary. 100% agree with that. Yes, yeah, honestly, thank you for mentioning that because it didn't even cross my mind because my journey with Islam was um, I found a video about Islam and I just got very interested in it. SubhanAllah, I started learning about it and I found how, you know, how truthful it is and, and how you just can't deal with the claims and the arguments it makes. Um, and that and that it resonates with, with my fitrah, alhamdulillah. Um, and then I came across like David Wood and like these, these um, apologists and these like Islam haters and all that. And they would bring these very faulty arguments. Um, and I, I guess I wasn't so much talking about, you know, proving anything other than Islam, but more so looking at the attacks on Islam. That's that's what I went down. Uh, like people would say, oh, the Prophet married Aisha and she was this old. Uh, and, you know, someone living in this day and age is going to feel that's weird. And then they start studying it, looking into it. They break that doubt. And then for me personally, my iman was higher. But Jazakallah khair. I do appreciate you that, mentioning that because I didn't even realize, you know, the implication it could have had. So Jazakallah khair. 100% bro. I, I talked to an atheist when I was early into my, I guess, proper coming into Islam. And I remember for that, I didn't, you know, leave Islam or anything. But for the first day after that talk, all I was thinking about is what he was telling me. And I was just like, damn, I really didn't know all these things. 
Or another time, I watched the David Wood video. This was for the first time. It was very early into me coming to Islam. I was just like, oh, really? Just like looking back, I'm like, bro, all these stupid arguments, they have, they're just debunked. But he still uses these arguments every day. Whatever. Till today, I don't know why. But it is what it is, man. Brings in money. The truth has enemies. But just looking back at it, if I had that solid foundation of Iman that I have now, it wouldn't have come. And Iman not only comes from just feeling close to Allah, Taqwa and all that. It comes from knowledge and understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. That is true. That is true. Um, honestly, more recently, the more I looked into matters of Aqidah, and, and honestly, when I read like the original, like the works of like Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Arif, like the, the, the greatest classical scholars, mm-hmm. that alone just like reinstilled this this really firm Iman in me. And I don't know what it was, but to everyone out there, I really do encourage reading like Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, the Quran always, obviously, but even the works of the classical scholars, like if you like, um, Al-Fiqh Al-Asba' by Imam Abu Hanif or the Fiqh books of Imam Shafi honestly if you read that I honestly think um, it'll really strengthen your Iman inshallah y'all have heard of a book called Diseases of the Cures and their, or Diseases of the Heart and the Cures by Ibn Taymiyyah not sure if you have I've, I've heard of it yeah oh, it sounds familiar something on my reading list but that being said man since we only have a few more minutes there's one topic it's a huge topic I know you're not an expert in it as you said in your I think it was an IG live or a highlight but it's just this whole thing about pornography addiction, no fab, all that. And today it's widespread, not only in the non-Western cultures, but in the Ummah too. And, you know, a lot of people might think, oh, I don't want to commit zina. So instead I'm going to do this. You know, it's better than committing haram. It's still haram, right? And what they don't realize is it's going to lead to a lot of other issues, physiological manifestations of a mental abnormality that I want you to get into. But there's also people in Nikah having wives or having a wife and they're still watching porn. So what wisdom can you share with these brothers that are currently suffering? Wow, uh, that's caught me off guard, subhanAllah. You know, one thing I like to say when Pete, when, when, a, when a brother brings me this type of question, he says to me, oh brother, I had a, a gentleman bring me this question the other day. He said to me, Maddie, there's this woman at work. I know she's not wifey material. She's she's been passed around like the village bicycle, but I can't help but entertain fantasies of being intimate with her. What should I do? And I said to him, marry her. And he said to me, what? I said, marry her. Make her the mother of your children. Now put a plan in place from this day forward to make her the mother of your children. And watch how your own mind will work against you to make sure that you don't do that. You see, one of the perversities of human nature is that we have an inclination to go towards that which we know we can't. And Viktor Frankl, as I'm actually quoting him, in one of his methods of therapy, he would implement this thing. So someone with a stutter would come to him and he would say to the individual, I want you to talk to me, but you have to stutter. You cannot talk to me normally. And lo and behold, the the stutterer would be unable to stutter anymore. He thought he had some type of mental disease. Actually, he was what you try to what you try to do often because you're trying so hard, you build up this anxiety and you end up doing the opposite, not being able to do it. So I said to this brother, ask her to be the mother of your children and watch how your mind goes against you from making it happen to stop you from making it happen. Once you realize the nonsense in this. Now, when it comes to this issue of porn, Wallahi, what can I say? I can give you the normal spiel, which is this. Eventually, you're going to become 
the the biochemical release in your in your brain will get you to a point where you are no longer able to look at your wife and be stimulated by her. Your level of arousal is too high. You want, by the way, low arousal levels are what we aspire to have. You do not want a high arousal level. A low arousal level is, mashallah, you come home to your wife, even if she's hench, she still looks like a beach babe, right? Because, <laughs> <laughs> like just low, low sensitivity. Low sensitivity, that's the word I'm looking for. When you have a high sensitivity, it means that you need that crazy stuff in order to get yourself going. So, I mean, I don't know what advice to impart other than this. Carry on destroying yourself. Carry on and have and see what impact it has on your relationship. Because if I say to you, don't do it for this, that, and the other reason, you already know this. So I say to you, carry on, have a look, have a see firsthand what type of damage this is going to do to yourself and to your marriage. And once you've learned the hard way, you can come back around and tell us, tell us all about it. Uh, I love I love giving away these wisdoms and gems that we're talking about now because only a select few make it to the end. You know, we, we all talk about showing up as half the battle, but how many people actually can have the discipline to sit through an actual resourceful video? But that being said, I'm going to offer something a little counterintuitive, but it goes in line with Brother Mahdi's aforementioned point <clears throat> about depression and kind of just mental illness staying at home. It's forget everything you guys have been ta uh, taught about, you know, physiology and just chemicals and all that and you know anxiety and you need pills and all this it all comes down fundamentally this is just again i'm not a licensed physician or anything this is just what me and angel have anecdotally experienced and learned through our limited time in this dunya so far so bismillah we all have energy now energy can neither be created nor destroyed it can only be transferred from one form to the other right forget cells just think of us as energy now if we have a high amount of energy among most of us you know as men we, we naturally have high energy we need to use that energy we need to dissipate it right a lot of people talk about sex transmutation right we need to use this energy if we don't use it our body will use it for us right now think about it like this if you're sleep deprived what is your body going to do? It's not going to ask you, hey, do you feel do you feel like you're going to take a nap? No, it knows. You probably pulled an all-nighter. You probably pulled a second all-nighter. You're in midterms. What, what is it going to do? It's going to make you crash, right? Let's say you're cold. It's not going to ask you, hey, do you want a blanket? Do you want a heater? No, it's going to start shivering to generate heat, right? In physiology, we call this homeostasis or equilibrium. It wants to maintain that balance and it's going to do whatever it can. If we're too hot, it makes us sweat. Now, if you guys, ladies and gentlemen, you're not using this energy that you have, your body will use it for you. What is the most energy-using organ in the body? Mahdi, what do you think? The brain. 100%. The brain uses more glucose, more oxygen, more blood, more energy than any other organ in the body combined. Now, think of it like this. If you have a surplus of energy and you're not using this energy, your body's not going to say, hey, do you want to use this energy or give you like a little like ping like hey reminder use this energy because it knows we live sedentary lives stuck for a lot but we do now what is it going to do it's just going to shoot all this excess energy to your brain to just use it it doesn't care that this byproduct of shooting up excess energy is going to be anxiety depression schizo whatever all it wants to do is just get you back into equilibrium exhausted energy levels right if we're not doing it first it's going to do it for us now think about two days the first day, you're going outside, you go to roller coasters, you go, you do MMA, you go to the gym, right? How do you feel when you come home, Mahdi? Exhausted. Exhausted, right? But I guarantee you, if you spend the day in bed thinking, only thinking, depressive thoughts, nasty thoughts, insecurities, haram thoughts, 
at the end of that day, you will be more tired than the day where you were actually out there living. Very, most people would disagree, but if you do it, I guarantee you. Now, the reason being is again, the brain uses more energy than the body. Combine that with, does a positive thought or negative thought burn more energy? Rami, what do you think? Negative thought for sure. Negative thought. So now your body's gonna shoot all this energy to your head, give you negative thoughts too. And before you know it, you've become an efficient energy consuming or burning machine. Wow. It doesn't care about how you feel. It just knows, okay, we're getting it off. Similarly, pornography also applies to this. Masturbation applies to this because when you're partaking, it uses tremendous energy to release. Bro, you could create a kid. You could create a human life form. But instead, you're just watching a screen. But anyway, your body doesn't know the difference, right? So all it knows is a lot of dopamine release, a lot of energy release. So you basically get yourself into a loop where you condition yourself to live in this low way of life just to maintain equilibrium of your energy. And we're not even aware of that. SubhanAllah. Uh, that's deep. Uh. You, you, you remind me, actually, when I, when I lived in Saudi Arabia, I was only there for a year. But I will never forget when I first came back to the UK after four months to visit my family. I had a very interesting experience. So I spent four months in Saudi Arabia with no wife. And just you have to understand, I had a, I had a wife for eight years prior to that. So like, man, was dying. I was dying. Yeah. And then I, I, I get a plane from Medina to Egypt airport. Now, bearing in mind, the whole time I'm in Saudi, all I'm seeing is black niqab head to toe. There's even the models, if you've ever been there, the female models in the clothing shops, the pictures, they're blurred out, they're pixelated. So you can't actually see them. You see nothing in the way. That's how it was back then anyway, 2013. I don't know about now. <laughs> so you see nothing. I get to Cairo airport. And I will never forget the impact one particular perfume ad had on me. It was just a normal woman spraying a perfume. And it was like a shock to my eyes. And I realized at that moment that my sensitivity level was extremely low. And when I came to the UK, same experience. Three, four days later, that effect had worn off because I'm constantly exposed to these images. Even if you lower your gaze, you can't help but see it once. So to my Arab brothers living in the Middle East, especially in Saudi Arabia, they got, them man are firing on all cylinders because their sensitivity levels are so low. They're not exposed mm -hmm. to it. I don't know about now, but that's how it was back then. Um, but my point is this. Generally speaking, no matter where you live, you can still lower your gaze. Right? Tell the believing man and the believing woman, no, it's I can't remember the exact ayah. Tell the believing men to lower their gaze and protect their privates in that order. Mm -hmm. Allah didn't say protect your privates, then lower your gaze. He said, lower your gaze because that will help you to protect your privates. Mm -hmm. So if you have an addiction to porn, for example, the best thing that you can start doing is just get yourself into the habit of lowering your gaze. Nothing drastic, nothing major. You're outside. Be conscious, be conscious of yourself. Check yourself. Okay, I saw that. Lower my gaze. Baby steps. Slowly, slowly. And I'll conclude on this point. There's a brilliant uh, Arabic proverb that I learned from Naman Ali Khan. And he said, Man kabbura shay'in fatakbur. Woman saghara shay'in fatasghur. Whoever makes something big, it will become bigger. And whoever makes something small, it will become smaller. The attention and effort you give to something will dictate how much it grows or shrinks. If you make a big deal out of something, it's gonna grow. 
If you give it very little effort and attention, it will shrink by default. You can apply this to anything in life. Why, where am I connecting this? I'm connecting it to, you mentioned to me, what advice could I give to someone who has this addiction? Again, I have never had that addiction, but I will say to you this, the more attention and energy you give it, the bigger it grows. The more it grows, the less energy and attention you give it, the more it will shrink. And I'll say to the individual, I don't know if I'm overstepping my bounds here. You got a porn addiction? Go even further. Go on. You know you're destroying yourself. See how far you can take it. Because now that you have told your mind to destroy itself, it will work against you to pull you back. Because we innately don't like doing what we're told to do. We don't like, why, why did Angel Jibreel, when Allah sent him to Jannah and Jahannam, he said, go to Jannah. He said, oh Allah, whoever sees this will want to enter it. Then he said to him, go to the hellfire. He said, oh Allah, whoever sees this will never want to enter it. He said, now go back again. He went to the hellfire. He said, oh Allah, uh, Allah surrounded it with desires, shahwat. He said, oh Allah, I fear whoever, 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 I fear that people will enter the hellfire because of the shahwat that it was surrounded, surrounding it. Then Allah sent him to see paradise. And paradise was surrounded with hardships and difficulties that I fear nobody will enter it. We work in opposites. So if you have an addiction, try this therapy that Viktor Frankl talks about. You've got a problem? Do it even more. Go further. See how far it can take you. Because you know you're on the path to destruction. You know you're harming yourself. Keep yourself completely. Finish yourself off. Now your mind will work against you to ensure that it starts pulling you back because you have given it free reign. You're no longer trying to fight against this resistance that is pulling you in. You've said, okay, it's free game. I'm going to go all in. And watch how your mind works against you. Just as that stutterer, when he was told to stutter, he said to him, I want you to stutter right now. He couldn't stutter. He spoke freely and normally. Wallahu alam. I don't know if I've overstepped my mark there from a Shara'i perspective. Oh. Hundo, man, guys, we're not we're not qualified to get fatwas. We're not, you know, telling you guys to, you know, go do more haram, right? So, you know, any mistake we make, it's from us and shaitan, But that being said, we're talking from a very theoretical perspective. If you guys want to abstain from things, try overdose therapy, right? You you have a sugar addiction, bro. Go a whole day just eating sugar. Heck, go a whole week just eating carbohydrates. You probably lose muscle. I, I advise strongly against that, but do it. You're going to get sick. You're going to feel miserable. By the end of it, your mind will just rationalize, bro, how do I just not do it anymore? And you won't get that when you're tiptoeing around it, right? And that, that's the difference between having discipline and just kind of flailing around and just trying to avoid things, right? Discipline means you, you completely can be okay without it, right? It, it's almost like if, if somebody's addicted to alcohol, oh, I'm going to not keep any alcohol in the house, right? You shouldn't have alcohol anyway because we're Muslims. But if let's say you're addicted to sugar, I'm not going to keep any chocolates or junk in the house. Why? Why are you not going to keep chocolates or junk in the house? All it's going to take is you go to your homeboy's house and he has some chocolates or some sweets and then you're just going to cave. Or you go outside, you go to a restaurant, all it's going to take is that's it, right? Keep that in you. Bro, wallahi, I have a Kit Kat bar on my nightstand. I've had that Kit Kat bar, I think, since January. Why did I have that? It's the same Kit Kat bar, by the way. I know my roommate sometimes thinks like, I eat that and then I replace it. Nah, it's the same Kit Kat bar. That, that's probably done as heck, right? I highly don't. If anyone comes over, don't eat that. But that being said, why do I have that there? It fully desensitized me to it. I don't want sugar anymore. It's subconscious too. People forget the power of the subconscious mind, right? Like Brother Mahdi was saying about the porn, go all in. And you'll realize like, it's not 
You know, there's nothing to it. There's nothing more to it. It's our mind tries to shield us away and give it more power, like he's saying, than it deserves. And because of that, we glorify it, right? We, we almost idolize it. We hold it to such a high regard than it deserves. I so, mean, I think that the reason I quoted Norman Ali Khan with that proverb, that Arabic mm. proverb, whoever fixates upon something, it grows. Mm. And whoever gives it very little attention, it shrinks. When you're trying to leave an addiction, well, I can't speak from a perspective of experience. From what I understand, when you're mm. trying to leave an addiction, let's say you're a smoking addiction, you think, about the, you think about it all the time. And the problem with thinking about something is that you are watering it. It's growing inside your mind. I understand there's like a, a relapse in your mind and your mind is thinking about it. But the problem is you thinking about it is causing it to grow. That's why I said, go on then, destroy yourself, finish yourself, stutter. And you will not be able to stutter anymore. But I want to be very clear here. I'm not qualified to give. I feel like this is stepping into like fatwa zone. <laughs> and whatever you heard from me, please take it to someone who's qualified. Because I feel like I'm overstepping my mark now. Facts. But I get your point, man. I get your point. It's kind of like people hit me up all the time, right? Because again, since I'm an online coach, they don't just come to me for fitness. They, they come to me for everything, right? Masculinity, sleep, testosterone, whatever. A very common question. I would even say this is one of my most common questions from any client and non-client. Bro, how do I fall asleep earlier? I can't sleep. I have to wake up in the morning. It's like the more you think about why can't I fall asleep, you will never fall asleep. Oh, that is Wallahi, so until that is you so get over your fear of sleep or what's going to happen. Listen, the mindset I have, if I have to wake up and there's five hours left and I know I'm not going to get my eight hours for testosterone and I know that I'm not going to sleep. I don't care. If you have the mindset, if I sleep, I sleep. If I don't sleep, I don't sleep. You will fall asleep faster. Then why can't I fall asleep? I have to wake up. That is so true. That is so true. Okay. Rami, anything else? No, honestly. I've just been sitting back and enjoying it. MashaAllah. I think uh, they're all really good points. SubhanAllah. Yeah, man. I know it's going to have fun watching this. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Sure. All right, guys. With that being said, write down some, some ideas of suggestions for our next video with Mahdi in the meantime before we do schedule him in. So we are prepared for, you know, anything else you guys might think would be valuable. Brother Mahdi, thank you so much for making the time to be here. I know it's pretty late in the UK right now, I believe. But with that being said, I wish you a very good, wonderful last few nights of Ramadan and a wonderful Eid, inshallah. Habib, jazakumullah khair for having me. It's been a pleasure. Jazakumullah khair, ikhwan. Barakallah All right, Rami, end all right, with that being said, Jazakallah Khair for tuning in. Make sure you watch the next one with Mahdi, inshallah, and the rest of our episodes. Jazakallah Khair. Check out Mahdi's book and his socials. I believe he has a Patreon as well. If you want to shout anything out, now is the time. Uh, I'll link in the description. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it all over to you, inshallah. All right, perfect. Jazakallah Khair. With that being said, Allahumma atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa kina adhaab al-nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.